This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. Good morning and welcome to this episode of Energy Sense, the IHS Market Podcast, where we discuss all things at the intersection of energy and finance. I am Brian Doherty and I'm here, as always, with um, the excellent Hill Vaden. Thank you for being here, Hill. How are you today? I'm doing well, Brian. How are you? I'm pretty good. Uh, it's uh, so well. You know what? I'm. I, we're not going to go. We're not going to go into a bunch of the excitement that's been happening over the last week, it's particularly here in the U.S. Plenty of news coverage on that. So let's it's just. Been let's a big just week. Leave. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been a big week. There's been a lot. Um, I'm not going to head down that rabbit hole because uh, <laughs> I, like, I feel like I've been talking that for a lot of days and watching a whole bunch of news. So um, let's hear clear of that, but. So yesterday, I read an article. I thought you'd find this interesting. I read an article, and actually, for our guests, who I'm going to tease that our guests might be related to this in some way or another, but we're going to we're going to say who they are in a second. <laughs> uh, I, I'm all about the teases. The uh, I read an article. A, a British man. It was a British man, apparently, who um, is offering a quarter of. I think it ends up being like $7 million or something like that, that he's offering up to the local dump because he says that he has on a jump drive a a certain amount of Bitcoin that would be valued, that he estimates to be valued about $273 million. So he's offering about a quarter of the value of it for the local dump to let him go there and try to find it. So, I mean, obviously Bitcoin, the, the value of Bitcoin has, has exploded tremendously. Yeah. And this guy, he'd mined it... Um, a long time ago and, and apparently it was in some sort of commercial account or some sort of whatever he had it in there there's been no discussion about where it came from which is i guess part of the part Did of he the identified the dump so he has identified the dump it's his local I, I think it's a i think it's a smaller space i can't remember which town it is but um in in the uk and he has identified it and he's approached them and i think when i sort of started skimming i was trying to read more background on it i think he's approached them once before a few years ago and they said no and now he's up the ante and said you know here's a certain amount of money and he apparently i think he's trying to use a um sort of an algorithm to guess about how he could maybe chart out the dump and figure out the best places to start digging in order to find this jump drive because he he wants it and um so anyway so then i speaking of rabbit holes so of course i'm reading this article and then i read the next article about some guy who took his wife out for a really nice dinner or something at a certain point where bitcoin because he'd made this certain amount of money on bitcoin so they splurged on a really expensive weekend and um and now he's like that would be valued at x number of dollars if we just left there we'd be able to be retired and you know buy a house or whatever the situation was but um so anyways bitcoin How, (laughs) how do you feel about or have you have you been reading any particularly dramatic stories around the rise of Bitcoin? Well, I've got one, but but for, on this this rich guy, I can't help that there was a, a Simpsons episode many years ago when Mr. Burns it basically employed Homer to do pranks for for his own amusement, and he would have <laughs> it, it ends with Mr. Burns throwing fish guts all over the people of Springfield during a parade. Um, it would help of Homer Simpson. 
Well, Homer eventually finds his, uh, I guess, finds his ego or his pride and backs out saying, you know, I'm humiliating myself for Mr. Burns's amusement. And so I'm quite suspicious that this guy in the UK, because he's identified the, drunk, uh, the, yeah. the dump, is just trying to get a bunch of us to go and climb through the trash looking for this thumb drive and that there's no thumb drive with millions of dollars. So this, so this is the question. Like, at what point would you say, yeah, I'll head to the local dump and do a couple hours of digging? Well, I mean, it probably d d depends on the person. I'm not going to do it, but but I I could see some contract it out to your children. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Uh -oh. small hands. Yeah, uh, it, it it is a good example of how crazy things have got with Bitcoin. And and I saw this uh, yesterday in, in a uh, a paper that I was reading that there there's a challenge. Um, when, you know, when social media people take pictures of themselves and do weird things to go viral. Um, and, and the kind of the, this article was about somebody who had, you know, apparently timed Bitcoin pretty well, uh, said that he, you know, made his money, got out. It was causing him too much emotional stress because it could go to zero. It could go to a million. Um, he'd gotten enough and it was time for him to kind of pay his taxes and get out. And the signal to him was Lindsay Lohan, um, that, that she is doing some recording saying, buy Bitcoin, blah, blah, whatever. It is. I can't remember the exact recording of it, but she's on Twitter trying to get people to uh, get into Bitcoin. And that was his tell that too many unsophisticated <laughs> retailers have gotten into the game. I think I think that's a fairly um, I think that's a decent tell. I feel like yeah, I can I can get behind that logic that the moment you start seeing um, the Lindsay Lohans of the world, you know, no no offense to Lindsay Lohan, I, I, maybe maybe she's got phenomenal um, financial <laughs> acumen. I'm not I'm not quite sure what her situation is, but I think that's fair. I, I, I can see that concern starts mounting when. Yeah, so he he was comfortable getting out, and if Bitcoin goes to a million, you know, he he would have his money elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, or he'd be in the dump looking for this guy's thumb drive. Yeah, well, this is it. Or he's going to take a part-time job digging through a dump somewhere. Yeah. I mean, it, when you think about it, though, it's completely easy. I can see how that happens because think of the number of times since, I'd say in the last 15 years. Oh, some of, if I was to dig through some of my closets, you find random USB drives everywhere. Yeah. Right? I mean, because back in the day, that's what you were you you were using them when you were you know get when every single time you got a new computer or whatever, and you were putting things on the USB drives, um, just because you didn't have the storage that you have now, for instance, yeah. um, on the computer. And so, I, I get it that he apparently he started digging through his his stuff looking for it, and then he realized, oh no, it's gone to the dump. I mean. I think it's a pretty fruitless endeavor. I'm pretty sure it's going to be hard to find in the dump. I mean, this number of years later, if you told me it was last month, maybe. <laughs> you get me out there digging. But you're telling me it's years later? I mean, I, I just think that's an impossible feat. I mean, some well, it does kind of... A rat picked it up and swallowed it or something. Like, you don't know. <laughs> well, in terms of treasure hunting, it kind of sucks, right? That there's you know, all these great stories of pirate's treasure, you know, these big chests of gold, you know, yeah. chests of copper pot or whatever from the Goonies, uh, <laughs> where you're finding, like, you know, crowns and, you know, all sorts of things. There's a lot of excitement and allure in that type of treasure hunting. Looking yeah. for a thumb drive and a pile of trash is not so pretty. Not exactly where I want to go. You're probably going to find several thumb drives. So it's going to be like you're going to find one, try to test it. Because he also he mentioned in the article or was mentioned in the article that the expectation would be is that you'd have to then take to specialists to try to recover it. Right. That it's not that USB drive, you know, you just plug yeah. it into your computer and see it. So uh, anyways, um, 
There's probably That's people out there sweating bullets who threw away their thumb drives with, you know, videos or other things that they don't want found yeah. <laughs> in that. <laughs> you right. That's a very good point. There's going to be a bunch of people standing by the dump saying, like, don't touch that one. Don't touch yeah. that one. Kanye and Kim. <laughs> well, okay, I and I, I wasn't, you know, I was actually true that this actually relates to our guest in, in two capacities because um, we're going to be talking <laughs> about uh, the global markets, the European gas market, and um, more importantly, the Asia market. So we do have some of our some of our guests from across the pond, which is great. So we've got Simon Wood and James Taverner with us, and we're very lucky to have them. They're focused on global gas and LNG and, um, and two of our experts within the space, which is great to have you. Thank you both for joining us. Glad to be here. And the other relation to Bitcoin is it was reported this week that for the first time ever, LNG cargo prices soared higher than Bitcoin, faster, higher than Bitcoin, which brings us to our topic. What happened? So what <laughs> has been happening in the, you know, and, and let's get into the dynamics of this. Is it specifically the Asia LNG market that's happening? Well, you know, how does this relate to the global gas market? Maybe we can turn to James first and he can give us a little bit of a rundown on what exactly has been happening and why LNG prices in Asia skyrocketed and cargo prices, you know, skyrocketed above Bitcoin. Uh, sure. Yeah. So thanks very much for, for having us today. Very, very excited to uh, talk about one of our favorite subjects here. And as you say, uh, spot prices for Asian LNG have increased faster than even Bitcoin. Um, so just last week, we heard of a cargo trading hands in Asia for around $39 per MMBTU. Now, to put that in context, uh, it's easy to forget now. But if we go back to the start of 2020, uh, we were in a global surplus for LNG. At the end of April 2020, Asian spot prices were dipping below $2 per MMBTU. So that was an all-time record low. So just in a period of a few months to get from there to an all-time high, there's been a lot of things that have happened all at once to kind of create this market tightening out in Asia. And why... And is it yeah, like what what is it fundamentals? Is it was there a huge unexpected disruption? I mean, something something's got to trigger that. Uh, the answer is yes and yes. And what <laughs> happened really to tighten things so quickly? Uh, you, there's three things you can point to really. Number one is on the demand side. Uh, Asian LNG demand recovered very quickly, in fact faster than expected after the pandemic. And on top of that, you had cold weather as well. Uh, number two, this all happened at the same time as supply outages. There was unexpected outages at a number of liquefaction projects around the world that took an unusually high volume of um, supply out of the market at the same time. And the third thing on top of all of this was constraints and shipping constraints. So there was a shortage of available LNG carriers to get that gas over to Asia when it was needed, as well as delo uh, delays in pinch points like at the Panama Canal. So, and and maybe I'll I'll turn to Simon a little bit on this. When when we saw this price spike, it, we we know that over the last year, and and James mentioned last year, obviously with the record low Asia LNG prices, that a part of it was there was a big convergence within Asia, Europe, and Henry Hub last summer, and and we talked a little bit about that back then. So, has this Asia price spike been able to pull up the whole complex? I mean, are we Europe? We we haven't got the same news flow around Europe. Yeah, I think what this shows is kind of the the nascent nature of the Asian gas market versus certainly Europe and the US. Um, Europe did see a tightening of conditions, um, a drop in LNG send outs and deliveries, of course, tightened the European market. But Europe has a lot more mechanisms for flexibility than, than Asia. So 
we, we were able to see the um, Russians via Gazprom uh, increase uh, pipeline flows. You saw Norwegian flows increase. And of course, we saw significant withdrawals from storage. So, so Europe has a lot more in the tank, so to speak, to balance should the LNG market tighten. So European gas prices did increase and then also increased on the back of uh, higher emissions prices, that's carbon prices in Europe as well, because um, cold gas switching is another important element of the uh, European gas complex. So there's a lot more going on to kind of keep a lid on prices in Europe than there is in Asia. Is the absence of storage, I mean, it seems to to not, you know, be too close to this, but the absence of storage or the relative absence of storage in Asia puts it at a in a sense, a huge disadvantage as the global gas world connects itself relative to other parts of the world. Is that some of what happened here? If certainly comparing it to Europe, I'd say yes. In Europe, when prices do spike, the curve goes into backwardation and storage can withdraw. But also Mm -hmm. you've got the element of pipeline gas. And quite often you'll see pipeline gas play the shape of the curve as well. So you'll see lower deliveries when the market's in contango because you just delay delivery into um, a later quarter or year. And when it's in backwardation, you'll try and bring your production forward. That's certainly the case with Norwegian flows. So it's not just about storage. It's about the flexibility in pipeline. And you know, the largest gas markets for LNG in, in, in Asia are you know, South Korea and Japan, where they're almost entirely reliant on LNG. And there's limited storage, but also limited um, pipeline import infrastructure as well. So what do I, I mean, is this, how do I resolve that if I'm Asia? I mean, because the US has plenty of storage as well. Well, obviously in China, you've got a rapid expansion in in, uh, underground storage. Uh, But I think it's a bit more more challenged in, uh, in Japan and South Korea, James. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. As you say, Japan and South Korea are virtually entirely reliant on imported LNG with no pipeline connections. And they don't have the geology themselves, really, to build uh, large-scale underground storage like you have in in North America. How do you get around that? So, as you said, in China, for example, uh, the government has plans to vastly increase the amounts of storage uh, that you've got there. There's a bit more geology to do that. So that will help on that side. Uh, Other things that people are thinking about. So, for example, for Japan and Korea, uh, there's plans for potentially having hubs that could supply LNG from nearer. So Russia, for example, is looking at potential storage hub in Kamchatka on the East Coast. There, that would be one or two days away from Japan or Korea. So there are solutions like that that could help as well. And then the other thing to do, of course, is to think about how you can affect the seasonality within uh, your own markets in terms of more efficiency uh, on the heating side. Because that's one of the issues, right, is that right now, a big barrier to it is the lack of storage, but then it takes 25 to 30 days to get a flexible cargo to Asia on whenever an event occurs. So 25 to 30 days naturally doesn't resolve a physical constraint at pace. Obviously, price is capable of not only just rising dramatically, but staying up there for, for a little bit longer than in any other markets. I think, I think the other point that we'll just sort of remind listeners of, though, is that Everybody's looking at. Well, hold on a second. Henry Hub prices are two fifty. So wait, wait. What, why? Why are we not? <laughs> why are? Why is there not more gas going? We need to remember that that right now U.S. LNG utilization is at one hundred percent. 
So once your USLNG is run in 100%, doesn't matter what the spread blows out to be, you just can't move any more volumes. So I think that's really been interesting as well, that it highlights that during the winter time period when USLNG utilization is at 100% or, or expected to be at 100% just because winter demand is higher and that gets assumed um, that that's going to happen, that the LNG market actually you know does lose a little bit of that benefit of, of a potential marginal cargo that can, that can enter the market if there is an isolated event like this. Yeah, the interesting thing about that is you're right. So US LNG exports, after dropping to very low utilization over the summer in the period of surplus, in the winter they picked up again. Now, looking at the the the, the price of Asian spot LNG compared to Europe, you'd expect a lot of the cargoes from the US to go into Asia. But actually, not as many did as you might think. And the reason why is because of, well, one of the reasons why is this uh, shipping issue that we talked about. Uh, there were limited uh, short-term ships available. And if they were available, it's for shorter periods of time. Given the shorter period of time, you can get the, the gas from the US to Europe, but you may not have time to get all the way over to Asia and then importantly bring the ship all the way back to where it's needed as well. And so what we had instead was uh, volumes from places such as Qatar, during its Europe reduced, and that was switched over to Asia instead. And um, so I think this, one of the things that we've learned really from the last few weeks is how you have to look at pinch points across the whole value chain. It's not just, is there enough LNG, but also is there enough shipping there as well? Do I have enough regasification at import facilities? So that's an interesting lesson from the last few weeks. And on the shipping side, there were also some additional constraints we were reading about related specifically to shipping routes because of some implications mm-hmm. of COVID-19. Is that is that right, that it actually tightened the market a little bit more? Sure, yeah. So there were delays at the Panama Canal. Uh, that's a very important route for uh, U.S. cargoes going to Asia. You can save a lot of time going through Panama rather than around the bottom of, of Africa. Um, and there were delays going through that. Now, one of the reasons for the delays was extra precautions and uh, administrative procedures needed as a result of COVID. And we have heard other stories about how Um, Some ships have been waiting in port for longer because of quarantine requirements for crews as well. When you have a market that's already getting a little tight, these extra days here and there all add up and adds to a much tighter shipping situation than it looked like at the beginning of the winter. Well, in in terms of kind of, is there anything that's happened recently that would change the behavior in terms of kind of long-term investment or is this a blip? You know, am I going to, are we going to see increased investment in um, either, you know, trade route expansion or container build or people looking at this and just saying this is a, you know, lightning's not going strike, to strike twice type incident. So on the shipping side, uh, we do have, uh, we estimate around 53 conventional LNG tankers, uh, new tankers coming into the market in 2021. So to put that in context, that would increase the size of the fleet by about 10% or so. Wow. Now, yeah, so there's quite substantial uh, new tonnage coming in, and a lot of this is not already allocated to a specific export project. And what that means is it will be available for the short-term hire. And so we expect, we expect, but you know, who knows, but we expect that by the time we get to next winter, it's much less likely this kind of shipping tightness would happen again. So from a fundamental standpoint, there's obviously been some very specific things that have happened this winter. And, and as you pointed out, you know the fundamentals look like there's going to be some softening going ahead, sort of reducing the risk of this. But it does appear that the price response was quite disproportionate to the fundamental story. Like, why is it that the Asia price can 
can climb to this extremely high level versus obviously the European market also saw some pressure and, and definitely climbed. But as but as Simon pointed, you know, there's there's more flexibility there. Is there are there can we talk a little bit about the specific challenges with establishing and the importance of liquidity sort of in a in a pricing conversation and the challenges that are in Asia? Yes. So if I were to kind of surmise what happened was we saw a significant drop in the number of spot cargoes being made available, tighter conditions, the outages, um, particularly in Asia where there's security of supply. So people were trying to keep hold of whatever they had, that whatever length they had in their portfolio, which meant that the number of potential participants on JKM or any other the, any uh, other kind of pricing benchmarks in Asia fell. And as we kind of saw prices escalate, um, more and more participants fell away. And in the end, it really appeared there was just one actor in the market. And that's when we saw significant bid offer spreads emerge and we entered that kind of bull cycle. But as we kind of pushed through traditional caps on prices, such as oil price parity, JCC parity, there was no mechanism by which you could benchmark that price anymore or no anchor. So if there is anyone who is short a cargo, they'll be they're forced to post some fairly fairly high prices. But just remember, the vast majority of gas that was being traded or delivered at the time wasn't being delivered at that price level. It would have been right. delivered at an oil indexed or a prearranged price. You compare that with, say, Europe, when we have you know, multiple liquid benchmarks, multiple transportation routes, and multiple players all with slightly different portfolio needs who can set the price and close those bid-ask spreads. So you saw what had been looking like it was going to be increasingly liquid market with all those new US cargoes free on board entering the market over the summer to a very tight market very, very quickly. So that's the challenge of building any benchmark is how do you manage and build confidence in those swings as you try and try and develop a, uh, a truly Asian representative energy index. How long, I mean, you hear stories, you know, like in power prices and things like that, where things get crazy for a couple minutes or, you know, a couple yeah. seconds. How how long did things get crazy in this incident? I mean, was this a multi-minute or multi-day event? I think it was multi-week. I think it reached a percent okay. last week um, when it hit 39.3. But we were sat there kind of in December watching prices push through 10 12 $13, push through oil price parity. And at that point, we said, OK, the market's got to start balancing because there's no, no there's going to be no new cargoes, no new supply arriving. There's been no uh, gas to oil switching or, coal to ga or gas to coal switching beyond this point. We've already exhausted the flexibility and it kept on kept on rising. And as I say, other other benchmarks have had these kind of crises of liquidity. I remember in kind of 2006, I think, NBP, the UK price benchmark, went negative for a day. You know, NBP uh, on the 1st of March 2018 hit £5 per therm, considering it was trading at 50p a therm a few days, a few weeks beforehand. Those price spikes do occur, but they normally come and go very quickly in a matter of days. In the power market, it's a matter of hours, you know, when you get these price spikes. So the challenge being is that those price benchmarks are very, very heavily linked to the underlying physical markets. You've got regulators, you've got within day flows, instantaneous flows, giving the market a very good picture of what's going to happen. And the market can understand what's driving that short term supply or demand crunch and how quickly it will fall away. You don't have that transparency of data in Asia and you don't have a single uh, regulated authority 
sat, sat there ensuring that there is transparency of information. It's a very different, different market. Yeah, and I guess ultimately in both Europe and the United States, it's not going to take you 25 to 30 days to bring in your marginal piece no. of supply, I guess. That, you know, and I, I think it's so interesting because when we look to the development of the LNG market going forward, I mean, naturally, Asia, mainland China especially, I mean, Asia is going to be playing an extremely important role. So when we think about going forward, do we think that the necessary combination of physical and paper liquidity, do we think it's going to emerge in Asia? Or is it that the, the Asian LNG market is going to be perpetually prone to volatility just because the, the nature of the physical market in Asia? And what, what do we think about that going forward? The challenge we've got in Asia is there is no single kind of authority that's attempting to build a single Asian market. We're relying on the market to create its own price benchmark and its own hub. In Europe, you had a liberalisation that was politically driven uh, in the UK and then by the European Union that ensured that we saw kind of transparency and um, across the region. We had target models and we had energy packages which ensured compliance. There is no single body like that in Asia. What you need is a body that's willing to combine the pipeline, the LNG market and what storage there is and kind of aggregate the liquidity from those individual points uh, to create some sort of virtual hub. The most obvious candidate for that would be China, which is going to be the largest market in the region. It's got significant domestic supply potential. It's got significant pipeline import potential from Russia and Miami and other regions. And you've got obviously the LNG markets, and that could connect it with the rest of the world. The problem you've got in China is, of course, production and imports are dominated by a few large state-backed actors. There's not the plurality of traders, independent producers, utilities that you have elsewhere. So there isn't that number of market participants, but perhaps that could create that. Uh, And of course, you'd have to have a lot of certainty in the regulatory environment in order to have kind of liquid trading. And given that we haven't got a history of that in the region, that could scare a lot of uh, potential uh, utilizers of that benchmark. And James, is that some of the, if, if, if I'm thinking about this from the perspective of something like oil markets, which is moving around the world on boats as well, and that volatility is you know, potentially less there, at least in, in, in comparison uh, to what we've just seen, is it the number of participants and just the, the size of the market that's really, I guess two questions, is it is the number of participants and the maturity of the market the, the, the big thing that will make it more, I guess, normal? And then two, when things like this happen, you know, where's the fallout, uh, but both positive or negative? You know, who, who's who's winning and who's getting burned when you see that type of movement? Sure. So the first part there, um, I think number of participants would certainly help. And it's something that uh, across Asia, people are looking at how to attract more participants to take part in the in traded markets. Uh, as Simon mentioned there, looking at China. So, for example, in China, you have a Shanghai exchange, uh, which is uh, in trading gas now. But also in Japan, Japan is looking if it can set up its own hub there as well. And then people looking around, or Singapore, people often talk about as a hub. How do you get enough volume between those three? How can they be connected? Is all three of them together? Will that give enough participants to make it a liquid market? So certainly participants is one thing. But as as Simon mentioned earlier, about that physical underpinning and um, the the ability to get volume in to solve imbalances very quickly, uh, perhaps it would always be prone to some sense of volatility. To the second point there about the fallout, (laughs) it's an interesting question. One one potential thing here is that if you go back a few years, say in 2016, when Japan 
uh, the Japanese government published its uh, LNG market strategy. It clearly said that we no longer want our LNG to be priced just indexed oil. That's a traditional way it was done. Uh, we don't believe oil really reflects the fundamentals of our market anymore. We want a local hub that will reflect our local Asian supply mm -hmm. demand dynamics and increasingly encouraging people to link the, uh, the contracts value or to, uh, to, to a hub like that to help it develop. Now, if people are looking at the market saying, well, the volatility, record low, few months later, record high. Can we see where this is going? Uh, that makes it harder, I think, for people to have the certainty to, to link to the hub. And of course, uh, banks uh, and investment community who are thinking about how their approach to funding new liquefaction projects, can they fund something where the revenue streams might be based on what appears right now to be a very volatile and relatively illiquid market? I think that's really interesting because when you think there's there's two sides of it, right? That there's there's a physical market that probably prefers stability, right? And and a very an ability to have a price market that they feel is um, very liquid, very stable, something that can can give them a real sense of where the returns are going to be and and what the risk exposure is going to be. Whereas if you speak to a lot of traders out there, I mean, they love volatility. The dream is that you're engaged in something. Well, I shouldn't say the dream. I won't speak for traders in general, but let's be honest. You know, there's a lot out there who live for you can make an entire year out of two days. You know, if you've if you've got the right if you happen to hit the right exposure, and that's what's always made, particularly here in the United States. I mean, that's what the natural gas market here was known for, right? Yeah. That there were there were traders that were so active, uh, speculative trading within North America, obviously surged. Um, very rapidly because around winter weather dynamics and, and just the ability for the market to go into such states of volatility. And um, let's be honest, market participants, speculative positioning, you know, tends to flock to such occasions. So I think it's an interesting dynamic about Asia that potentially this event is also, I, I'm going to put it to you guys, has this event potentially brought in some interest as well? Yes. Volatility creates opportunities and traders love it. But what I'd also like to point out is that you can have volatility and stable price benchmarks. So, <laughs> Good point, uh, Simon. Yeah, because, you know, <laughs> so for example, like use, use the European gas market, market or Henry Hub, you can have a very stable futures curve and the prompt month ahead, within day, day ahead, moving all over the place, which is where traders are making their bread and honey, uh, milk and honey, sorry. And but because people trust the balancing regime and the regulatory regime, the curve can remain quite stable, which means that other participants, utilities, buyers, sellers are willing to use that price benchmark for their long-term contracts um, because they, they trust the mechanisms and the flexibility within the market. Where Asia is going to struggle is you have a lovely, beautiful, volatile month ahead Asian LNG contract moving in line with what can be quite volatile uh, demand patterns, particularly in the, in the winter months. But you don't want your curve to be moving in quite the same way. And what in order for that curve to be, you, you need to attract participants to utilise your benchmark to see that kind of financial trading around the curve. So what's happened isn't good for encouraging people to utilize that uh, benchmark in their contracts. But then again, every single benchmark for most commodities has been through a similar process and you just learn from it. And as long as the, the price discovery agencies and the market participants identify what happened this time and what we can change in the future, and as, as James says, some of the, uh, the bottlenecks will start to disappear with the expansion of the shipping fleet. There's no reason why it's it's not certainly not going to be terminal for uh, Asian LNG benchmarks. 
you know, traders may be interested in more volatility, perhaps, but I think it's probably less interested in that from the buying side, uh, particularly the Japanese and, and Koreans who uh, traditionally have very much favoured security of supply. Mm-hmm. And um, I used to uh, live in Tokyo. I was based in our office, the IHS market office in Japan there. And when we attended the conferences uh, put on each year by the government, uh, producer consumer conference uh, put on by METI, the discussion was always about how can suppliers and buyers work together to ensure the stable, steady growth of LNG. And so things like this, the volatility uh, could be an obstacle potentially to this steady growth necessarily. I think many buyers, still, particularly the governments, they're very interested in uh, what could be more stable uh, measures to help uh, develop the new wave of projects that we think will be needed in a few years' time. Well, and so what, um, maybe that's a good place to, to leave it for uh, a future conversation, but if we're looking forward, you know, the, the, you know we, we talk a lot on this podcast about the different types of energy now competing for market share, and it's a, an increasingly complex world. Um, you've got wind competing with solar, competing with hydrogen, competing with LNG, competing with oil, you name it. If I am advancing the interest of something that is not LNG, I'm going to throw this up to every politician in the world and say, hey, choose my energy to build your supply around. Uh, look at LNG. If I'm LNG, I'm going to hold off and say, hey, look, this is a blip. You know, what do you think kind of the, the larger per- perception of this, especially as one needs to I- increase market participation? And I assume that Lindsay Lohan is not going to be getting on Twitter <laughs> to encourage security of supply. You um, never know. She's an interesting <laughs> lady, Hill. Maybe I'm wrong. So, so what, where, where do you guys see this going? Is this a, a big black eye for LNG markets as energy becomes more co- competitive? Or is this something that people look at, learn from, put into perspective, and LNG continues to be you know, as important as it was in the low-carbon uh, world? Well, certainly in all our scenarios, LNG remains an important constituent of the global energy mix. And we are seeing the process of commoditization occur in the LNG market. Long-term contracts are falling off. We are seeing um, shorter, uh, more flexible contracts being signed. So if I was the LNG market, I would just turn around and go, this is a natural process of commoditization. And there was tightness in the Asian market. We've sent a signal that says, yes, the shipping market has too many frictions, for example. Those are frictions the market needs to sort out. So the market's letting you know its points of weakness. And there is an appetite from portfolio players to fix those points of weakness and that these should become less common going forward. I'm a bit more sceptical about the emergence of a really liquid Asian hub because of the physical limitations that we've talked about. But I'd like to hope that um, the the natural progress would, uh, would, would carry on there as well. And James, James you agree? any any final comments? Uh, I think or, sh- or crystal ball predictions? <laughs> we, we take anything like that as well, always. <laughs> uh, well, crystal ball prediction. Uh, we don't see the Asia spot price records of the last few weeks as being something uh, that is sustainable. I mean, okay, that's obvious. But uh, crucially, we still think underlying there is a structural surplus in the markets. If you look at how much demand is expected to grow this year versus supply, we think supply could still outpace demand in 2021 as well, which suggests that we may still have a similar size surplus by the time we come to summer again. So we'd expect uh, Asian prices to drop down again. Now, will the short-term spike do some damage to how gas, for example, grows in South Asian markets compared to coal? 
that's something that uh, we'll have to see as we go on. But for sure, uh, these markets will be looking at ways of um, maybe securing supply on longer term contracts or uh, something like that moving forward as well. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, that was James Tavener and Simon Wood, who were who very kindly uh, devoted some some time to Hill and I uh, to talk about all things in the LNG market. This is the first time we've had both of you on, actually. Well, neither one of you have been on um, prior to that. So that's that's very exciting for us. We constantly like to to bring in new recruits. And we we like to we like to tell ourselves that once you've done it, you know, you get you get a little bit of a glimpse into it and then you're thirsty to come back for more. So um, now that now that we've got you on the roster officially, we'll be sure to, to come back because, as, as you mentioned, it sounds as though based on our base case expectations that this was a very interesting event, but that the summer is going to look very different. So, um, you know, more similar to what happened last year, potentially. So we will probably be revisiting this question because. It could be that we go from $2 to $39 back down to, you know, I, I won't say $2 because I know it's not $2 in our base case, but, you know, back down <laughs> under the, the $5 mark, which um, is going to look dramatically different than obviously the last few weeks there in Asia. So thank you very much to both of you for joining us and uh, we'll speak again soon. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks very much. Thanks, bye. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.